So if everybody take your Bibles and go to Psalm 45, Psalm 45, it says, For the director of music, to the tune of lilies, of the son of Korah, a masculine, a wedding song. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. One of my favorite psalms. You know, many of you who study the scripture will recognize that, that parts of that psalm are referenced in the first chapter of Hebrews in the New Testament. So Psalm 45 tells us of a mighty Jesus during his millennial rule. It describes him as being the most excellent of men, that his lips have been anointed with grace, that he rides forth as victor on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. I love that line. Isn't that great? Jesus will vanquish his enemies at Armageddon, that he will kill his enemies, his sharp arrows finding their mark, and that all nations will fall beneath his conquering feet. And then it says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, of course, this verse needs a little bit of explanation. When folks hear the term, O God, applied to Jesus, they stop thinking. They say, see, Jesus is God. This verse is not saying that Jesus is God Almighty. How do I know this? Well, look at the next verse. It says, you love righteousness and hate iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So God by uh, God Almighty, by definition, is what? Almighty, right? There is none above him. Therefore, he cannot have a God and at the same time be God Almighty. Pretty simple, right? So the, the problem here is with our understanding of the reference of, O oh God, being applied to Jesus. The term God, in this sense, is used, it's a Hebrew reference, and it's applied to leaders, and especially spiritual leaders. This is speaking of Jesus as a ruler in his millennial kingdom. It says, a scepter of justice or righteous, righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, Jesus will rule with complete authority and righteousness. You'll remember in Psalm 2, it says, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? Therefore, your kings be you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. So it says here in Psalm 45, verse 7, it says, You loved righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. It is because Jesus loved righteousness and he hated wickedness that God set him above his companions. 
and anointed him as the Christ. Okay? Jesus loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So the next time some snarky unbeliever comes up to you and said, well, what would Jesus do? You can turn around and say, why my snarky friend? He would love righteousness and hate iniquity. That, that's a great description of who Jesus Christ was. He loved righteousness and he eschewed evil. Now, let's keep a few important things in mind. First, the words righteousness and wickedness. I was thinking about many people who call themselves Christians. They go to church every Sunday. They have their Bible tucked under their arm. But they won't use the vocabulary of Scripture, okay? This is because they will. They either outright refuse to, these terms are too immoderate to use in polite conversation, or these terms have simply fall, fallen out of favor in the culture of their spiritual communities. And what, what I'm talking about is righteousness and wickedness. A lot of people don't use the word wicked anymore, have you noticed? Wicked has too much of a spiritual connotation to it. You can talk about wickedness, but if you do, then you got to talk about the source of wickedness, right? I'd rather, you know, people would rather stay ambivalent and talk in psychological terms. He's mentally unfit or, you know, challenged or whatever. Everything has become a euphemism. But that's not the case with the Bible. The Bible speaks in distinct, defined terms. Jesus Christ is defined by being somebody who loved righteousness and eschewed evil, okay? And we need to be able to talk in those terms, right? Especially in the liberal non-scriptural churches, you're going to find a lot of your common colloquialisms. And we just can't afford to use those terms in our church. I, I would go as far as to say that if the terms righteousness and wickedness are not part of a person or a church's everyday spiritual vocabulary, that person or that church is not spiritual. You see what I mean? Because we're, we're dealing with spiritual verities. Ephesians talks about how we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, mights, dominions. Okay, so we need to be very comfortable with speaking in terms of righteousness and wickedness. We know that there are two wisdoms, the wisdom from above, from God, and the wisdom from this world, or Satan. If a person claims to walk by the wisdom of God, but fails to think and speak in terms of righteousness and wickedness, he's not what he says he is, okay? I listen for these things when I listen to preachers preach. Are you afraid to use the term wicked? Really? In this spiritual competition, you're afraid to use the word wicked. Then you're trying to appeal to someone other than God for your favor. I think about 1 Corinthians 2.13 where it says that this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by man's wisdom or human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words, right? Pretty clear, isn't it? So these two words, righteousness and wickedness, they define the spiritual contest that we have. The words love and hate. He loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Those are visceral words. Does everybody know what the term visceral means? Visceral means that when we talk about a person's viscera, viscera means your bowels, your guts, right? Somebody was sliced open and his viscera poured out. That sounds pretty disgusting. <laughs> but that's the use of the word viscera, all right? So when we speak of something being visceral, we're talking about something that comes from your center, from the, your guts, from your depth, 
Okay, so when we talk in terms of love and hate, there's no half measures, in other words. I loved, I mean, that is a visceral word. I loved, that means all of me, that's the sense that it gives, and I hated, right? You don't love or hate half-heartedly. It comes from your bowels. Some will say, well, I cannot believe such things about Jesus. I always thought that it was sin to hate. Right? I can surely appreciate Jesus loving, but I can't imagine him hating. Well, he did, and God does. The Bible says that God loves. It also says that God hates. Jesus loved righteousness, but he hated iniquity. I think we can say that he hated sin and wrong and evil perfectly. He hated them with a perfect hatred. You know, I was on Facebook, uh, you know, when I originally taught this teaching, and there was a person on there who posted the following with regard to a mass murder that had just recently happened. This person said, let's start with a reason why most mass murderers are men. How much of our tax dollars have been spent on that research? Perhaps we need to change some filters. Look at studying and profiling the personalities and habits, etc., of these freaks, so maybe they can become somewhat recognizable. How many countries are or were ruled by men who started a war or Hitler-type destruction. There's a starting point. Well, on one hand, that sounds fairly reasonable, but this is supposed to be a spiritual person who wrote this. And this sounds very senses, doesn't it? This person was advocating spending tax dollars to research the reasons for mass murdering. So why did this person murder 59 people and critically wound a whole bunch of others? Will a state-funded research project find the answer to that? No especially one that denies spiritual realities. They can't recognize God. They won't recognize Satan. And they won't use words like wicked. The answer is no. Why? Because the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because these things are spiritually discerned, right? Unless you have the Spirit of God, you cannot understand spiritual things. And that's a reality. There are no answers to such evil outside of the spiritual. A man who commits such evil does so because he is evil. Psychology has absolutely nothing to say about this. Evil resides in that person's heart who would kill these people. So my answer to this friend of mine was on Facebook, this man chose to feed his soul with depravity and darkness. It's all about choices. And there is a God to whom each of us must give an accounting for those choices. No amount of taxpayer-funded research can negate or elaborate on this. Whether one agrees or disagrees, it's really that simple. Our contest is with evil. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 and look in verse 12. It says, For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. How about that? When we get away from these truths, we fall into the wisdom of man. The Bible commands us to stand against evil in all of its forms. Therefore, we are to love righteousness, and we are to hate iniquity. We should never be complacent with either, because these terms are visceral words. A person cannot 
love honesty without hating dishonesty. A person can't love purity without hating impurity. A person can't love truth without hating lying and deceitfulness. That's how it works. If you're going to love one, you've got to hate the other. That's how it works. And if we think that we will spiritually help anybody, really help somebody, without these clear distinctions in our hearts, we're fooling ourselves. You are never really going to help somebody spiritually unless you know the distinctions between love and wickedness. Half-heartedness renders your love and your hate inert, ineffective. Ephesians chapter 5, and look in verse 15. It says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, when you turn on the evening news, do you get that clear impression? No. You might get the clear impression from one political pundit talking about another political personality that he's evil, but the Bible says that the days are evil. You know, Paul never minced words. So firstly, before hating sin in others or in the world, the Christian must learn to hate sin within himself. Many Christians come to the conclusion that, because they are saved and sanctified in Jesus, the contest with oneself is over. I would say the contest, and that's the real contest, has just begun. We know this verse, you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah chapter 17, and in verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We all have one of these hearts. There is wickedness baked in to our hearts. It's baked in. It's a reality. And that's why before I start looking to point my finger at somebody else, I need to make sure that I'm looking at myself, right? There isn't a human being who is an exception to this. Romans chapter 16, go ahead and turn there, Romans 16. And in verse 19, it says, Everyone who has heard about your obedience, so that I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. How about that? That we are schooled in righteousness and we are innocent concerning evil. So think about this. So when you are saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. Having this Holy Spirit within allows us to change. But God must do his work. And his work requires a lifetime to do. I've met Christians who believe that they are no longer under sin after they've been saved. That's just foolishness. They believe that upon salvation, a person somehow magically gives up sinning. It would be nice, but not true. Many of us were taught in the former ministry, wrongly so, that any attention that we give to one's sinfulness is being sin-conscious. This is an error. What does it say in 1 John? If any man sin, sins, he has an advocate with the Father, right? So we've got to be aware when we sin. Just makes sense. I would say the opposite is true. The closer we draw to the light, the more our sins will be exposed and the more we become aware of our own sinfulness. I'll tell you what, I, you know, being a mature Christian, I find myself asking for forgiveness a lot more than when I was a young Christian. That's right. That's right. You become very aware of your own sinfulness. It's, it's something else. It's, it, it even, you know, it gives you more of an appreciation of God's mercy that God can continue to work in me, someone who is so utterly filled with sin, right? 
I mean, that's amazing. That is amazing to me. When the Holy Spirit points out our sin, the Bible says that we are to do what? Mortify it, reckon it dead, renounce it, repent, and be done with it. That's what it says. That's the truth of Scripture. The mark of a self-righteous person is someone who lets himself off the hook easily, but is very quick to castigate somebody else's sin. And we know a few people like that, don't we? We should be, I mean, if we're going to be hard on anybody, it should be hard on ourselves and compassionate and understanding and merciful for other people. We all wrestle with sin. I think of Peter when he was standing with Cornelius, and Cornelius wanted to get down on his knees in front of Peter. And what did Peter said? Stand up, for I too am a man. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? It does me. I too am a man. None of us has the right to hold anybody's sinfulness over them. It's mercy. What did, I brought it up a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's um, uh, what did Paul say? As one having received mercy that I might be faithful. It's God's mercy that I can, you know, teach the Bible today. It's amazing. What, is the, what does the Bible say? It says in Galatians 6.1 that if a man, you know, a person is overtaken with a fault, you which are spiritual are to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness or gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We don't glory in other people's sin, but we are there to point it out. And the reason being is because a lot of times people don't know that they're sinning. Secondly, we are to hate that sin in other people. How often do we tolerate sin in others in our conversations with them, right? I taught a couple of weeks ago on the sin of partiality. What is partiality? That we, we show favoritism, right? So if you go to my church, I cut you slack. But if you go to somebody else's church, I'm right there pointing my finger at you. Well, that's not right, is it? There is a time to point out sin, but we ought to do it impartially. If I'm willing to point out somebody else's sin, I'd be able to pull it, point out my my best friend's, you know, my best friend's sin, right? Doesn't that make sense? Or the prettiest girl in church. I had to be able to point her sin out too, if need be. And, and, I, and get my understanding here. I'm not talking about going around, you know, that's all you do is point out people's deficiencies. But there are times where we have to bring things up to people. And we need to do it without partiality. You know, Spurgeon... Um, he was a minister back in the 1800s in England. He said, if you hate sin in others, it will be necessary for you never in any way to countenance it. There is many a Christian who does more mischief than he knows by a smile. In other words, we, we see the sin, but we never say anything. We need to speak up, and we need to speak up lovingly, lovingly. And this can be done in a variety of ways. Sometimes, it's proper for you just to remove yourself from the conversation. If you're part of a conversation and it's an ungodly conversation, the very fact that you get up and remove yourself from it oftentimes is reproof enough. And people go, hmm. Psychology says that silence is the highest form of rejection. Sometimes people are yammering away in an ungodly way. The best thing you could do is just sit there and change the subject, right? That's reproof. The problem is, is that we are far too accommodating, aren't we? A person says something that's wrong and we just go along with it. Now, there, you know, when you do bring something up, there is a wonderful way of bringing it up. Some people, you know, they point out your sin and you just, you know, you, you want to smack them for it, you know. Other people, they bring it up in such a wonderful and a gracious way. I think of one person who jumps to my mind and it's my sister, Dana Lewis. 
who, if she brings something to your attention, you just want to give her a big hug for it. Thank you. Now, some people that comes naturally, others like me, we got to work on it. But I love that. Another way that you can bring something up to somebody is ask them. Say, now, you just said such and such. Why did you just say that? This is a very effective way of bringing something to somebody's attention, right? You let them explain why they said what they said. See, asking questions puts their statement to the test. Another thing is, once you ask the question, close your mouth. It's okay to have the awkward silence that follows, all right? It's okay. And we got to learn to be comfortable with the awkward silence. Don't be afraid of lovingly allowing a person to twist in the wind a little bit, okay? A lot of times we won't say something because we don't want to feel embarrassed for the other person, right? I'm like that. I don't, I don't want to embarrass a person. But there are times where you've got to ask the question and put the person on the spot to allow them to think through what they just said. We need to be bold to speak up. We need to be bold to speak up. How often do we allow people to say things unchallenged simply because we are too cowardly to say anything about it? And that's really what it is. We avoid it because we don't want to deal with the unpredictability of the results. I've, you know, nicely brought things up to people and watched them lose their minds over it. It happens. Um, But, you know, also makes the case for me. You know what I mean? There's a time when we need to help others get after things. So speak up. Speak up. Now, when you do speak up, you need to be prepared to be accused of being arrogant or high-minded or holier than thou. All right? Just kind of comes with the territory. If you were right, stick to your guns. Speaking the truth in love often means sticking to it for the long haul. And we have to ask ourselves periodically, look, was I right to bring it up? Yes. Okay, then I'm sticking to it. I'm not going to back off of it just because you don't like it. Always remember, though, that each of us is a sinner. And as a sinner, ultimately, we hate to be reminded of our sin, right? It's part of that self-righteousness that's part of your sin nature. So when somebody brings that up to us, when somebody comes up to us and says, look, brother, you know, I noticed such and such in your life, and you feel that thing welling up within you to defend yourself or justify yourself, what do you do? You suck it up a little bit and hear them out. And then if you feel totally reactionary, what do you do? You say, let me go think about what you just said and I'll get back to you. And then go pray about it. And you'll find that if that person is right, the Holy Spirit will show you, and then you get to go back to the person and say, look, I sure sure appreciate it. Now, of course, not every time somebody brings something to your attention, are they right? There are times where people have brought things to my attention and they were out to left field. And in those cases, you come back and you say, okay, I, I did some thinking about what you said and I don't agree with you. And here's why. And then you have a conversation with that person. Now, when you bring things up to person, I always think about Proverbs twenty-five, twelve. You don't have to turn there, but it says, As an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover on an obedient ear. So who are involved in that? Two people. A wise reprover and obedient ear. A person can speak wise counsel and somebody can be disobedient and not listen to it, right? That reality exists. 
or you can have an unwise counselor. You've had, you can even have situations where somebody is unwise or foolish, but if you are an obedient listener, you can actually find things in that person's foolish counsel that are worthy of consideration. I mean, that's how big it can be. That's the person I want to be, that I can even find good things in something that somebody says. I think I've told this story in fellowship before, but I had this, this girl come up to me, and she had to bring something to my attention, and she was scared to death. Oh, my gosh, she was scared to death. So when she started talking to me about whatever it was that she was talking about, she came across way too harsh. I mean, it was just... It was harsh. And and I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. And um, I could tell that she had to work up her courage to even say something. So I listened to her. And then she got done. And I said, well, I said, you know, I think you got a good point there. I said, that's something I need to I need to think about. And then I said, now let's talk about your delivery. <laughs> right. You came across way too harsh. And you did so because you were full of fear. So we have to learn to be able to tell people filled with love that I'm, I'm saying this to you, not to criticize you, but to help you. I, when I spoke to my Facebook friend that I was telling you about and confronted her thinking, she accused me of being arrogant, of talking down to her, of slapping her with verses. However, in the end, she humbled herself to what I was saying, and I just recognized that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down a stronghold. The problem is with her and her circle of friends is nobody ever said, you know, you know, your, your thinking is worldly. You're not thinking spiritually. And she needed somebody to speak up and say that, right? You never know. As in the case with this man I spoke earlier about who murdered people, all these like 58 people, if this, that this act may have been averted at an earlier time in his life if somebody had spoken up and confronted the evil that was germinating in his heart. We don't know the ramifications of speaking up faithfully. God does, but we don't necessarily know. They could be small. They could be large. But as being uh, being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's our duty to speak up. Our duty to speak up. Jesus never hated a sinner, but he hated the evil and the depravity that controlled that sinner. Right? He didn't hate the proud Pharisee, but he detested the pride and self-righteousness in that Pharisee. He didn't hate the woman who was taken in adultery, but he hated the depravity that made her who she was. Jesus hated the devil, and he hated those demons that he confronted and drove out. That's something. I saw this quote here. It says, we present-day Christians have been misled and brainwashed, at least in a general way, by a generation of soft pussycat preachers. They would have us to believe that to be good Christians, we must be able to purr softly and accept everything that comes along with Christian tolerance and understanding. Such ministers never mention words like zeal and conviction and commitment. They avoid phrases like standing for the truth. And in ending, I wanted to share with you this other quote that I came across. Yeah, I just love it. I am, a con- I am convinced that a committed Christian will show a zealous concern for the cause of Christ. He or she will live daily with a set of spiritual convictions taken from the Bible. He or she will be the one be one of the toughest to move. 
along with a God-given humility in his or her stand for Christ. Why then have Christian ministers so largely departed from exhortations to love righteousness with a great, overwhelming love and to hate iniquity with a deep, compelling revulsion? People remark how favored the church is in this country. It does not have to face persecution and rejection. If the truth were known, our freedom from persecution is because we have taken the easy, popular way. If we would love righteousness until it became an overpowering passion, if we would renounce everything that is evil, our day of popularity and pleasantness would quickly end. The world would soon turn on us. We are far too nice. We are far too tolerant. We are far too anxious to be popular. We are far too quick to make excuses for sin in its many forms. If I could stir Christians around me to love God and hate sin, even to the point of being a bit of a nuisance, I would rejoice. If some Christian were to call me for counsel, saying that he or she is being persecuted for Jesus' sake, I would say with feeling, thank God. Isn't that wonderful? So... Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for the hearts of everyone who lifted their their prayers to you today. Father, I thank you for, I just love, love the heart of the prayers today. I thank you, Father, for all their their prayers to you, Father, that you answer them all, that you bless them. And, and Father, see the, the meekness and purity of the hearts of the people who are calling upon you. I thank you for this. Thank you, Father, for just a wonderful week. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. You are my holiness, and this truth my soul finds rest. By your blood I now confess, Jesus, you are my holiness. Now I know how it feels, now I know what it's like to be blameless, shameless in your eyes. Righteousness and peace have kissed you.